As a young boy, I discovered amazing power in a small flashlight. Turning it on at night, I saw a large lighted spot wherever I pointed it. My excitement increased when shining the flashlight inside a dusty barn. A cone of light was projected through the air. But the most interesting discovery came when I pressed the flashlight firmly against the palm of my hand. My entire hand glowed in the dark. The light was actually within me. To observe the physical properties of light can be exciting, but discovering the properties of spiritual light and truth is even more awe-inspiring and essential. We live in marvelous times, yet also an hour when peace has been taken from the earth. To prosper in these times, spiritual light must burn within us. How do we obtain this spiritual light and ensure that the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ fill our souls? I would like to suggest three ways. One, learn true doctrine. Two, gain pure testimony. And three, live the gospel courageously. First, learn true doctrine. Alma discovered that the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just. Yea, it had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. President Henry B. Eyring stated, The word of God is the doctrine taught by Jesus Christ and by his prophets. Alma knew that the words of doctrine had great power. They can open the minds of the people to see spiritual things not visible to the natural eye, and they can open the heart to feelings of the love of God and a love for truth. In 1832, the Lord revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith a true and powerful doctrine about spiritual light, the light of Christ, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space, the light which is in all things, which giveth light to life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God who sitteth upon his throne. President Boyd K. Packer reinforced this truth in saying, The light of Christ is also described in the scriptures as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ can enlighten the inventor, the scientist, the painter, the sculptor, the composer, the performer, the architect, the author, to produce great, even inspired things for the blessing and good of all mankind. Recent scientific thinking on the fundamental properties of light is indeed stunning. Today, scientists even describe light as a carrier or messenger or mediator. How profound are the doctrines of the Lord. Second, gain pure testimony. This testimony is the confirmation by the Holy Ghost that God is our Father and Jesus is the Christ. The light and truth we see in all things urge us to obtain knowledge by study and by faith, which precede the confirmation by the Spirit. We can learn much of God's handiwork and goodness by our physical senses, 
But an even deeper testimony is revealed as we spiritually seek the truth with real intent. President Spencer W. Kimball said, The treasures of both secular and spiritual knowledge are hidden ones, but hidden from those who do not properly search and strive to find them. Spiritual knowledge is not available merely for the asking. Even prayers are not enough. It takes persistence and dedication of one's life. Our testimonies are strengthened as we reverently observe the great universe God has created for us. The Lord declared to Enoch, All things are created and made to bear record of me. Alma bore a similar testimony to Korahor, the Antichrist. All things denote there is a God, yea, even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it, yea, and its motion, yea, and also all the planets which move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator. The wrestle that Enos had before the Lord demonstrates the power of his father's testimony. Enos said, The words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart. Elder M. Russell Ballard said, A clear declaration of truth makes the difference in people's lives. That is what changes hearts. My wife and I attended a sacrament meeting near Hisifi, Brazil. A young boy, possibly nine or ten years of age, wearing his new blue suit on a very hot day, went to the pulpit and, in a very relaxed way, looked at the congregation. He said, Our family has been studying about moral agency. He then read, Wherefore, men are free according to the flesh, and they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. The boy then said, Some of my older friends are choosing to smoke and use drugs, but we all will have to accept the consequences of our actions. He finished with his testimony saying, I can see that this is true. This testimony from one so young was powerful and touched our hearts deeply. Third, we must live courageously in accordance with the light and testimony that we have received. We are promised, He that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. It takes real effort and sacrifice to live the gospel courageously. For some years, temple worship for the saints who live near Manaus, Brazil, has meant traveling two days in a crowded riverboat on the Amazon River, followed by two days' travel in buses through the hot tropics to the Hisifi Temple. Arriving worn out and tired, they would shower, dress appropriately, and immediately begin their temple worship. After several days of service to the Lord, they would make the long, difficult journey home. The words, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, were beautifully reflected by their sacrificing actions. To be at peace in these wonderful yet challenging times, we must learn true doctrine, gain pure testimony, and live the truths of the gospel courageously. As we live in harmony with the light and truth taught by Jesus Christ and by His prophets, we will see more clearly our eternal destiny 
I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters, recently my wife Barbara had back surgery and could not lift, twist, or bend. Consequently, I've done more lifting, twisting, and bending than ever before. And it's, and it's made me more appreciative of what women, and especially you mothers, do every day in our homes. While women live in homes under many different circumstances, married, single, widowed, or divorced, some with children and some without, all are beloved of God, and He has a plan for His righteous daughters to receive the highest blessings of eternity. This afternoon, I want to focus my remarks primarily on mothers, particularly young mothers. As a young father, I learned the demanding role of motherhood. I served as a counselor and then as a bishop for a period of ten years. During that time, we were blessed with six of our seven children. Barbara was often worn out by the time I got home Sunday evening. She tried to explain what it was like to sit on the back row in sacrament meeting with our young family. Then the day came I was released. After sitting on the stand for ten years, I was now sitting with my family on the back row. The ward singing mothers were providing the music, and I found myself sitting alone with our six children. I have never been so busy in my whole life. I had the hand puppets going on both hands, and that wasn't working too well. The Cheerios got away from me, and that was embarrassing. And the coloring books didn't seem to entertain as well as they should. As I struggled with the children through the meeting, I looked up at Barbara, and she was watching me and smiling. <laughs> I learned for myself to more fully appreciate what all of you dear mothers do so well and so faithfully. A generation later, as a grandfather, I have watched the sacrifices my daughters have made in rearing their children. And now, still another generation later, I am watching with awe the pressures on my granddaughters as they guide their children in this busy and demanding world. After observing and empathizing with three generations of mothers and thinking of my own dear mother, I surely know that there is no role in life more essential and more eternal than that of motherhood. There is no one perfect way to be a good mother. Each situation is unique. Each has different challenges, different skills, and different abilities, and certainly different children. The choice is different and unique for each mother in each family. Many are able to be full-time moms, at least during the most formative years of their children's lives, and many others would like to be. 
Some may have to work part or full time. Some may work at home. Some may divide their lives into periods of home and family and work. What matters is that a mother loves her children deeply and in keeping with the devotion she has for God and her husband, prioritizes them above all else. I'm impressed by countless mothers who have learned how important it is to focus on the things that can only be done in a a particular season of life. If a child lives with parents for 18 or 19 years, that span is only one-fourth of a parent's life. And the most formative time of all, the years in the child's life, represents less than one-tenth of their normal life when they're little children. It's crucial to focus on the children for the short time we have them with us and to seek with the help of the Lord to teach them all we can before they leave our homes. This eternally important work falls to mothers and fathers as equal partners. I'm grateful that today many fathers are more involved in the lives of their children. But I believe that the instincts and the intense nurturing involvement of mothers with their children will always be major to their well-being. In the words of the Proclamation on the Family, mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. We need to remember that the full commitment of motherhood and of putting children first can be difficult. Through my own four-generation experience in our family and through discussions with young mothers of children throughout the Church, I know something of a mother's emotions that accompany her commitment to be at home with her young children. There are moments of great joy and incredible fulfillment, but there are also moments of a sense of inadequacy, monotony, frustration. Mothers may feel they receive little or no appreciation for the the choice they have made. Sometimes even husbands seem to have no idea of the demands upon their wives. As a Church, we have enormous respect and gratitude to you mothers of young children. We want you to be happy and successful in your families and to have the validation and the support you need and deserve. So today, let me ask and briefly answer four questions. While my answers may seem extremely simple, if the simple things are being tended to, a mother's life can be most rewarding. Question. What can you do as a young mother to reduce the pressure and enjoy your family more? First, recognize that the joy of motherhood comes in moments. There will be hard times and frustrating times, but amid the challenges there are shining moments of joy and satisfaction. Author Anna Quinlan reminds us not to rush past the fleeting moments. She said, The biggest mistake I made as a parent is the one that most of us make, 
I did not live in the moment enough. This is particularly clear now that the moment is gone, captured only in photographs. There's one picture of my three children sitting in the grass on a quilt in the shadow of the swing, set on a summer day, ages six, four, and one. And I wish I could remember what we ate and what we talked about and how they sounded and how they looked when they slept that night. I wish I had not been in such a hurry to get on to the next thing, dinner, bath, book, bed. I wish I had treasured the doing a little more and the getting it done a little less." Close quote. Second, don't overschedule yourselves or your children. We live in a world that is filled with options. If we're not careful, we will find every minute jammed with social events, classes, exercise time, book clubs, scrapbooking, church callings, music, sports, and the Internet and our favorite TV shows. One mother told me of the time that her children had 29 scheduled commitments every week. Music lessons, scouts, dance, little league, day camp, soccer, art, and so forth. She felt like a taxi driver. Finally, she called a family meeting and announced, Something has to go. We have no time to ourselves and no time for each other. Families need unstructured time when relationships can deepen and real parenting can take place. Take time to listen, to laugh, and to play together. Third, even as you try to cut out the extra commitments, sisters, find some time for yourself to cultivate your gifts and interests. Pick one or two things that you would like to learn or do that will enrich your life and make time for them. Water cannot be drawn from an empty well, and if you are not setting aside a little time for what replenishes you, you will have less and less to give to others, even to your children. Avoid any kind of substance, any kind of substance abuse, mistakenly thinking that it will help you accomplish more. And don't allow yourself to be caught up in the time-wasting, mind-numbing things like television soap operas or surfing the Internet. Turn to the Lord in faith, and you'll know what to do and how to do it. Fourth, pray, study, and teach the gospel. Pray deeply about your children and about your role as a mother. Parents can offer a unique and wonderful kind of prayer because they are praying to the eternal parent of us all. There's great power in a prayer that essentially says, We are steward parents over thy children, Father. Please help us to raise them as thou would want them raised. The second question, what more can a husband do to support his wife and the mother of his children? First, show extra appreciation and give more validation for what your wife does every day. Notice things and say thank you often. Schedule some evenings together, just the two of you. Second, 
Have a regular time to talk with your wife about each child's needs and what you can do to help. Third, give your wife a day away now and then. Just take over the household and give your wife a break from her daily responsibilities. Taking over for a while will greatly enhance your appreciation of what your wife does. You may do a lot of lifting, twisting, and bending. <laughs> Fourth, come home from work and take an active role with your families. Don't put work, friends, or sports ahead of listening to, playing with, and teaching your children. The third question, what can children, even young children, do? Now, you children, please listen to me because there are some simple things you can do to help your mother. You can pick up your toys when you're finished playing with them. And when you get a little older, you can make your bed, help with the dishes, and do other chores without being asked. You can say thank you more often when you finish a nice meal and when a story has been given to you at bedtime or when clean clothes are put in your drawers. Most of all, you can put your arms around your mother often and tell her you love her. The last question, what can the Church do? There are many things the Church offers to mothers and families. But for my purpose today, may I suggest that the bishopric and the ward council members be especially watchful and considerate of the time and resource demands on young mothers and their families. Know them and be wise in what you ask them to do at this time in their lives. Alma's counsel to his son Helaman applies to us today. Behold, I say unto you, that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. I hope all of you, dear sisters, married or single, never wonder if you have worth in the sight of the Lord and to the leaders of the Church. We love you, we respect you, and appreciate your influence in preserving the family and assisting with the growth and the spiritual vitality of the Church. Let us remember that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. The scriptures and the teachings of the prophets and the apostles help all family members to prepare together now to be together through all eternity. I pray that God will continually bless the women of the Church to find joy and happiness in their sacred roles as daughters of God. Now, in closing, I want to add my witness of President Monson's prophetic call. I have known him since he was 22 and I was 21. That's 58 years. I have watched the hand of the Lord prepare for this day for Him to provide, preside over the Church as the prophet and president. And I add my testimony, along with all of the other testimonies that have been born through this conference, to His 
divine calling, his special calling as president of the Church, and add my testimony along with all the others also that Jesus is the Christ and this is his Church. We are doing his work to which I testify in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, it has been a sacred privilege to join with you in sustaining President Thomas S. Monson, his counselors in the First Presidency, and the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. I testify that prophets speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be Scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have the benefit and blessing of living scriptures, as declared by those we sustain as prophets, as well as canonized scriptures found in the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Pride. The prophet Nephi wrote, My soul delighteth in the scriptures, and my heart pondereth them, and writeth them for the learning and the profit of my children. Written scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon, bring us to believe in God and be reconciled to Him through the Atonement of Christ, His only begotten Son. Several months ago, a friend and I had the opportunity of presenting a set of scriptures to an associate who is not a member of the Church. Knowing that this might be a life-changing event for him and for us, we took the time to have his name embossed on each volume. As we presented these sacred records to him, we could tell he was deeply moved by the significance and sincerity of our offering. For several minutes, he examined each book without speaking, rubbing his hand on the cover and turning some of the pages. Recognizing the importance of the moment, we helped him turn to the title page of the Book of Mormon and began to explain that the Book of Mormon was another testament or witness of Jesus Christ. We then asked a question that all, he then asked a question that all missionary-minded members are anxious to hear. Why do we need additional witnesses of Jesus Christ other than the Bible? Rather than responding quickly, we asked him why he thought this might be important. His answer seemed even more inspired than his question. He suggested that since there appeared to be so many variations of the Bible in its teachings, we needed some kind of clarifying voice something that would help us understand the Bible better. His observation opened the door for us to share our feelings and testimonies regarding both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. We began by expressing our deep devotion and conviction to the doctrines and teachings of the Bible, especially the New Testament. Being able to read many of the Savior's words as He taught the gospel during His earthly ministry strengthens us helps us to come to know Him, and teaches that we can become more like Him. We then declared that, like the Bible, the Book of Mormon is additional evidence that God loves all of His children and has provided a way for us to return and live with Him once again. We spent the next hour or so reviewing many aspects of the Book of Mormon, including its history and divine origin. Allow me to share a few of the things that we discussed. We first explain that the Book of Mormon is a book with a promise. Although its history is compelling by itself, it is a book of scriptural significance 
that should and must be received and read under the influence of the Holy Ghost. All who study and ponder its teachings are given a promise found in the last chapter of Moroni, as well as in the introduction to the Book of Mormon, where we read, We invite all men and women everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain a testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Ghost. We then spent several minutes teaching about prayer and how the Holy Ghost can speak to our hearts and confirm that the Book of Mormon is true. Next, we stated that the Book of Mormon is a book with a purpose. From the title page, we read that the Book of Mormon was written by way of commandment and by the spirit of prophecy and of revelation to come forth by the gift and power of God to the convincing of each of us that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. In a personal expression of this purpose, Nephi, as one of the authors of the Book of Mormon, wrote, The fullness of my intent is that I might persuade men to come unto God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. Additionally, we explained that the Book of Mormon is a book that teaches the great plan of happiness. In profound yet understandable terms, the Book of Mormon teaches the purpose of life, from whence we came and what happens when we die. We learn of faith in Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice, of repentance, of the importance of baptism by immersion, and of the gift and power of the Holy Ghost. By studying and feasting upon the doctrines of the Book of Mormon, we gain a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and all men, with a desire to endure to the end that we may have eternal lives. Most importantly, we declare that the Book of Mormon is a book that testifies that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Great prophets throughout the Book of Mormon have borne solemn witness that Jesus Christ is the Creator of the earth, the Redeemer of mankind, the only begotten of the Father. These Book of Mormon prophets knew Him as Abraham and Moses did and received and taught His everlasting gospel. As we read and study their words, we gain a deeper understanding of the Savior's matchless love, His perfect life and example, and the blessings of His great atoning sacrifice. We then testified that the Book of Mormon is tangible evidence that Joseph Smith was chosen by the hand of the Lord to restore the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to the earth. As stated in the introduction of the Book of Mormon, those who gain a divine witness from the Holy Spirit of the divinity of the Book of Mormon will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom once again established on the earth. Ever since Samuel Smith set out to preach the gospel, with a few first edition copies of the Book of Mormon, it has blessed the lives of millions of those seeking the truth. I pray that we will continue to use the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, to share the gospel message with family and friends. If we do this, as was the case with our dear friend, 
Many will respond with great interest to know more about the life and mission of the Savior and His great plan of happiness for each of us. I express my solemn witness that the Book of Mormon is true. It is a book that has brought about a mighty change in my life. I know that God lives. Jesus is the Christ. His gospel has been restored on the earth. President Thomas S. Monson is his prophet and living oracle at this time. The spirit I feel as I daily read, ponder, and pray about the Book of Mormon strengthens my understanding and testimony of these things and reaffirms to me that they are true. I humbly share this testimony and my personal witness with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Three weeks ago, I stepped into yesterday. In that moment, I rediscovered today, and it is about today that I wish to speak. A Church assignment had carried me across the vast reaches of the Pacific to the land of Vietnam. For me, this was more than a flight over an ocean. It was a step back in time. More than 40 years ago, I had served on the battlefields of that land as an infantry officer. Etched in my mind over those intervening decades were memories of that place, its people, and my comrades-in-arms with whom I had served. Jacob once wrote, Our lives passed away like unto us a dream. So it had been for me. And now I was returning from my hall of memories to that place of memory after a near half-century. My Church business concluded I determined to once again visit those fields of desperate struggle. Accompanied by my dear wife, I made the pilgrimage. I'm not quite sure what I expected to find after so many years. What I did find was most unexpected. Instead of a war-ravaged people, I found a youthful, vibrant population. Instead of a countryside pockmarked by shellfire, I found peaceful, verdant fields. Even the jungle growth was new. I guess that I had half expected to find yesterday, but what I found was today and the promise of a bright tomorrow. I was reminded that weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. As I once again set foot upon the field and once more and walked once more a jungle path, in my mind I heard again the stutter of the machine gun, the whistle of shrapnel, and the clatter of small arms. I saw again the bronzed, youthful faces of friends who gave the last full measure of devotion. And I thought of one in particular, and one day, a single day, April 3, 1966, Palm Sunday, the Easter season, 42 years ago, almost to this very day. Our infantry battalion had been in Vietnam for several months. I was a lieutenant, the leader of a rifle platoon. We were involved almost constantly in combat operations. That day dawned with our battalion deep in hostile territory. Very early, we sent out a reconnaissance patrol of about 10 men. One of them was Sergeant Arthur Morris. Several of the men were wounded in a firefight, including Sergeant Morris, who received a slight flesh wound. Eventually, the men of the patrol limped back to our lines. We radioed for a medical evacuation helicopter. 
Loading the wounded men on the chopper, I urged Sergeant Morris also to get aboard. He demurred. Again, I urged him. Again, he demurred. Once again, I admonished him. Once again, he refused. Finally, I said, Sergeant Morris, get on that chopper. He looked at me, his eyes earnest, pleading. Please, sir, he said. And then these words that will forever haunt me. They can't kill a tough old bird like me. The entire scene is etched in my mind like a battle tableau. The jungle clearing, the impatient throbbing rotor blade of the helicopter, the pilot looking at me expectantly, and my friend begging to stay with his men. I relented. I waved away the chopper with its lifeline to tomorrow. Before the sun had set that very day, my dear friend, Sergeant Arthur Cyrus Morris, lay dead upon the ground, felled by hostile fire. And echoing in my mind over and over again, I hear his exclamation, They can't kill. They can't kill. They can't kill. Of course, in one sense, he was dreadfully wrong. Mortality is so fragile. Only one heartbeat, the drawing of a single breath, separates this world from the next. One moment, my friend was a vital, living person. The next, his immortal spirit had fled leaving the mortal tabernacle a lump of lifeless clay. Death is a curtain through which each must pass, and like Sergeant Arthur Morris, none of us knows when that passage will occur. Of all the challenges we face, perhaps the greatest is a misguided sense that mortality goes on forever, and its corollary that we can postpone until tomorrow the seeking and offering of forgiveness which, as the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches, are among mortality's central purposes. This profound truth is taught by Amulek in the Book of Mormon. For behold, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. Therefore, I beseech of you, that you do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at that time, at the time that you go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in the eternal world. What a pungent expression Amulex uses, the day of this life. The Apostle James put it this way, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. And the person we are when we depart this life is the person we will be as we enter the next. Thankfully, we do have today. If Sergeant Morris was dreadfully wrong, he was also magnificently right. We really are immortal in the sense that Christ's atonement conquers death, both physical and spiritual. And provided we have so lived today, that we have claim on the Atonement's cleansing grace, we will live forever with God. This life is not so much a time for getting and accumulating as it is a time for giving and becoming. Mortality is the battlefield upon which justice and mercy meet, but they need not meet as adversaries, for they are reconciled in the Atonement of Jesus Christ for all who wisely use today. It remains only for you and me to both seek and tender that forgiveness, 
to both repent and to extend charity to others, which enables us to pass through the door the Savior holds open, thus to cross the threshold from this life into exaltation. Today is the day to forgive others their trespasses, secure in the knowledge that the Lord will thus forgive ours. As Luke significantly recorded, Be ye therefore merciful. Perfection may elude us here, but we can be merciful. And in the end, repenting and forgiving are among God's chief requirements of us. My pilgrimage back in time completed, I looked around upon those peaceful fields of today and saw in their fertility the promise of tomorrow. I thought of my friend, Sergeant Arthur Cyrus Morris. I thought of that fateful Palm Sunday of yesterday, and I was profoundly grateful for the Redeemer of Easter morning who grants us life, whose descent below all things makes possible our rising above all things tomorrow, if we but seize today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the book of Luke, we read of a woman who, for twelve long years, had suffered from a bleeding condition. She had exhausted her means in search of a medical solution, but had found none. In a crowd of people, a woman approached the Savior from behind and touched the hem of his garment. Jesus wanted to know who had touched him because he felt that power had gone out of him. The apostles could not understand the question and asked, Master, the multitude throngs thee and presses thee, and sayest thou who touched me? The woman then, with great fear and trembling, confessed that it was she who had approached him and had been immediately healed. The Savior sent her away in peace, telling her that her faith had made her whole. There is much to learn and ponder in this interesting little story. I picture the crowd itself. It must have been fairly large, as people were pressing in on Jesus. It might even have been a noisy crowd, as people pushed and shoved, trying to get a better look at him. I wonder why they were there. Most, I think, came out of curiosity. Wherever he went, news of his arrival and stories of his miracles preceded him. Perhaps they expected to see something out of the ordinary, an event not to be missed. Though not mentioned, there were likely Pharisees in the crowd who always seemed to be close by, watching for opportunity to entrap, embarrass, or find something with which they could condemn Jesus. Could it be possible that some in the crowd even came to mock? Among the crowd was a woman. I see a humble woman, perhaps even a timid woman, approaching the Savior from behind and then with embarrassment confessing that she had touched the hem of his garment. She was a woman exhausted and impoverished by her difficulties. She was desperate for help. Outwardly, there was little to distinguish her from any other person in the crowd. No one tried to stop her from moving toward Jesus. Certainly, the apostles neither noticed her nor made any attempt to stop her. But there was something that set her apart from all others in the crowd that day. Though buried among the thronging mass, she resolutely and quietly pressed forward with a single purpose in mind, 
to come to the Savior, having faith that He had the power to heal her, that He cared about her and would respond to her need. In this one thing, she set herself apart from the crowd. The crowd came to see, but the woman came to be healed. There are other interesting accounts in the scriptures of one faithful person among a crowd. Alma was among the wicked priests of King Noah. These were men described as being lifted up in the pride of their hearts, lazy and idolatrous, who spoke lying and vain words to the people. They had perverted the ways of the Lord because they had not applied their hearts to understanding. When Abinadi delivered his message of repentance, they mocked him and finally put him to death. This was indeed an evil crowd. Yet, as the scriptures point out, there was one among them that believed. Alma alone took to heart what Abinadi had taught. With courage, he stepped away from the crowd to follow the Lord. The influence of this one man among the crowd on the course of Nephite history is immeasurable. One of the most well-known crowds in the Book of Mormon is the one that occupies the great and spacious building in Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life. The building was filled with people, old and young, male and female, who were mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who were partaking of the fruit of the tree. Unfortunately, some had tasted of the fruit, listened to the crowd, and fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. There were others, however, who partook of the fruit and paid no heed to the crowd. These were the ones who enjoyed the full blessings of the tree of life. In reality, these stories are not about crowds, but individuals among those crowds. They are really about you and me. All of us are among the crowds of this world. Almost all of us who all of us are like the woman who, despite the crowd, comes to the Savior. We all have faith that just a touch will bring healing to our aching souls and relief to our innermost needs. New members of the Church in many lands are often like Alma. They hear the words of life when no one else in their family or circle of friends does. Yet they still have the courage to accept the gospel and chart a course through the crowds. I think each one of us understands what it means to partake of the fulfilling fruit of the tree of life within sight and sound of those who mock, and what it means to exert every courageous effort to pay them no heed. Struggling through the crowds of the world can be lonely and hard. Their pull and tug on the individual who wishes to step away to something better can be very strong and very difficult to overcome. Who better than the Savior can reach, support, and ultimately rescue the one among the crowd? He understands what it is to persevere among a disrespectful crowd and still remain true. The worldly crowds do not recognize him, saying that he hath no form nor comeliness, and that there is no beauty that we should desire of him. King Benjamin says that the world shall consider him a man. Isaiah further describes Christ's place among the crowds of the world with these words. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, 
smitten of God and afflicted. Nephi writes that the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Yet ultimately this firstborn Son of God, who is so often misjudged and misunderstood, will emerge from being one among the crowd as the Anointed One, the Savior and Redeemer of the world. This emergence is humbly predicted in the Savior's own statement to certain chief priests and elders that the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. My brothers and sisters, I pray that each one of us can pass safely through the crowds of this world. In all of life's circumstances, let us quietly and resolutely press forward to the Savior, having faith that He cares about us and has the power to heal and save us. Let us heed His words of life and partake fully, continually courageously, of the fruit that comes therefrom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.